Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Katie and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name is Madge Kaplan. I am indeed Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and I moderate these monthly discussions. They are designed to translate knowledge, what is published in an article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Sandra Dials, first author of the article, Use of Gastric Acid Suppressive Agents and the Risk of Community-Acquired Clostridium Difficile-Associated Disease. That was published in the December 21, 2005 issue of JAMA. Dr. Dial is Director of Respiratory and Critical Care at McGill University Health Center SMBD Jewish General Hospital. Her research interests are directed towards understanding and preventing nosocomial complications, either causing critical illness or occurring in the critically ill. Dr. Dial's research areas include C. difficile colitis, immune dysfunction in the critically ill, nosocomial infections, and probiotics. Welcome, Dr. Dial. Thank you very much. Pleased to have you. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Dial's research with an eye toward that all-important clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo. Thank you, Madge. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author, or sometimes it's authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Making the leap from what's on the page to changing how care is delivered can be daunting, and that's why each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert, such as Dr. Kylo, who's been with us on many of these calls and who's with us again today. Now, what Dr. Kylo will do, in part, is provide a sort of improvement roadmap and lead us to some new clinical strategies based on the research, uh, some of which could be acted upon right away. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Dial will spend about 10 minutes summarizing her findings. Dr. Kylo will then take about the same amount of time to describe overall improvement methods and suggest some practical ways to apply the research findings to medical practice. And we look forward to that section, which we hope will really prompt some interesting discussion. At the bottom of the hour, or very close to that, we'll turn to questions from you, our callers, for Drs. Dial and Dr. Kylo, and we look forward to some discussion. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. So we ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you and we thank you.
you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. Uh, there are about 75 organizations on the phone with us today. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So welcome all, and we're going to get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Sandra Dial, who will provide an overview of her newly published findings on the association between acid suppressive drugs and the risk of developing Clostridium difficile infection. So, Dr. Dial, welcome again to Author in the Room, and we're eager to hear about your research. Thank you. So, again, I'm Dr. Sandra Dial from McGill University. So, um, in summary, uh, a Clostridium difficile is becoming an important cause of infectious diarrhea, especially in hospitalized elderly patients. We've noted in many countries that there have been increasing reports of hospital outbreaks and also a recent report from the CDC of cases occurring in the community and even in the lay press. It's not just happening in, in the United States, but in Canada, especially in where the province of Quebec where I am, we've had major problems with this disease, but there are also reports of problems occurring in the UK and in other countries in Europe. Even more worrisome, though, is that the disease seems to be changing with uh, reports of the disease being more severe, uh, with more severe diarrhea, more patients relapsing, and reports of patients responding poorly to treatment and unfortunately even higher rates than there used to be uh, of, of death from this disease. So in this study, uh, it was our objective to test whether patients taking drugs that would suppress the stomach acidity, in particular proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers, were at a higher risk of developing Clostridium difficile diarrhea than patients who weren't taking those drugs. We had performed a smaller hospital-based study where we showed this association that patients on antibiotics and proton pump inhibitors in that study were at a higher risk of developing the disease than people who are on antibiotics alone. We wish to confirm this uh, association in another study, and we were fortunate to be able to look at it in a community setting. So for this study, what we did was we used the UK-based GPRD, which is a general practice research database. So it's a database produced for research. It's not an administrative one. And we did the study over an 11-year period from 1994 to 2004. In this database, there are more than 3 million uh, patients enrolled, active patients, and accounting for probably about uh, 30 million million uh, patient years worth of data, and they're followed by about 400 general practitioners scattered throughout the UK. So the GPs enter all their patients' clinical information into a computer, and all prescriptions are generated from the study computer. So for one thing, prescriptions ordered by the uh, general practitioner for the patients is very complete. Um, the database has information about hospitalizations, but details of what occurs during a hospitalization is not necessarily completely fulfilled, and we also do not have any information on medications patients might have received while they were in hospital. 
for this reason, um, we made some uh, we made some selections to try to ensure that we had more complete information on the patients we were studying. So the first thing we did for the study is we only included patients who were followed up for at least two years in the GPRD before they were diagnosed with C. diff, and they had to be 18 years or older because we were interested only in studying adults. To be called a case, the patients had to have been diagnosed by their general practitioner. And the general practitioner could either record them either as having a lab toxin positive or they, ha they sometimes were recorded as having a clinical diagnosis of Clostridium difficile or some cases had both recorded. We only included the first ever uh, diagnosis of C. diff as a case. So with that initial case definition, there were 1,672 patients, and one of the first things that we saw is that the number of cases being diagnosed by their GPs in the community was increasing progressively over the 11-year period. There were only two cases each in 1994 and 1995, while in 2004 there was over 600. Of interest, this was occurring even though the total number of antibiotics prescribed by general practitioners in the database was decreasing with time. The first surprising finding for us that was of the 1,672 patients that were diagnosed by their general practitioner, 1,233 of those hadn't been hospitalized in the year before the diagnosis. So we then did two case control studies. In the first one, we used the total 1,672 patients, and we selected 10 controls per case. Each can, uh, the controls were matched only on practice and index date. So they had to be, have been followed by the same GP, and they had to have at least two years follow-up on the date that a case was diagnosed as having C. diff. Um, and from that initial preliminary analysis, we saw that cases were much more likely to be over 65, to have had a hospitalization in the year uh, prior to the diagnosis, and also to have received antibiotics in the 90 days prior to the diagnosis, which for us was an important step to, if you want, confirm the usual risk factors for C. diff, age, antibiotics, and hospitalization. Then, because we wanted to specifically look at drug, uh, drug exposure, we excluded all the patients who were hospitalized in the year before and only looked more carefully at the 1,233 patients who hadn't been hospitalized. We were more certain of complete prescription information. For this part of the study, we selected 10 new controls per case. And in this time, we also matched on age, and we also matched on not having been hospitalized in the year before. So in order to control for other factors that may be associated with Clostridium difficile, we also looked for certain comorbid illnesses that previous studies had suggested might be associated with an increased risk of C. diff other gastrointestinal disorders, cancer, diabetes, renal failure, chronic obstructive lung disease. So in order to test the association of uh, proton pump inhibitors, what we did was we controlled for a lot of, for these comorbid illnesses and also for other medications received. And the specific other medications that we controlled for were antibiotics, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and aspirin, and then we looked at 
after controlling for these, what was the association with uh, having been prescribed proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers in the 90 days prior to the diagnosis. So after adjusting for all of these or trying to control for all of these probable other factors that were associated with an increased risk of Clostridium difficile, what we found was that patients who were diagnosed with C. diff by their general practitioner in the community were more likely to be female, to have had a prior history of renal failure, inflammatory bowel disease, and cancer, and also to have been MRSA positive. We also saw that cases were more likely to have received antibiotics in the 90 days before as expected, but also uh, they were more likely to have received proton pump inhibitors as well as H2 blockers and uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. So in fact, after controlling for a lot of these other factors, we found that acid suppressive therapy was associated with an increased risk of C. difficile diarrhea, with proton pump inhibitors appearing to be associated with a higher risk than H2 receptor antagonists. Um, um, We also found that although the rate of C. difficile in the community is much lower than in the hospital setting, it did seem to be increasing with time. The other thing that we found in the study was that patients diagnosed with Clostridium difficile in the community, less of them had been exposed to antibiotics in the 90 days prior to being diagnosed with the disease than what we were used to seeing in hospitals. So just to summarize again, the major findings of the study was that acid suppressive therapy was independently associated with an increased risk of C. difficile. Proton pump inhibitors were associated with an almost threefold risk, whereas H2 blockers appeared to be associated with a twofold risk. Um, the rate does seem to be increasing in the community, and the other thing is that patients in the community may be less likely to have been exposed to antibiotics. Uh, prior to developing Clostridium difficile than what we're used to seeing in the hospital. Thank you very much. Uh, Very coherent and really look forward to to, uh, teasing this out further, Dr. Dial. Now we want to turn to what this research and uh, our author's conclusions uh, suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians and those in a position to influence or or improve clinical practice, uh, what they all might consider. So Dr. Kylo, we turn to you. Where do we begin if we want to convert these findings into some steps toward better patient care? Thanks, Madge. I appreciate that and greetings, everyone. Well, this is indeed uh, new information and very valuable and helps us to inform our knowledge base, and it should optimally, as you said, Madge, change, uh, uh, help to advance our practice. The challenge is for providers to do just that, to take these lessons from this and other similar studies and to use them effectively to make improvements in our daily practices, in our practices or in our health systems to improve the care that we deliver to patients. At IHI, we use a powerful tool called the Uh, the model for improvement to help bring about rapid improvement. The model is actually disarmingly simple. In essence, it's a form of learning uh, that's very similar to the scientific method, only applied to management improving processes, in this case, again, your practice or your system of care. 
Now, we've mentioned uh, the model for improvement past calls and discussed it more specifically. I'm not going to do so now. If you're not familiar with it or you'd like to know more, I'd refer you to the articles that were referenced in the conf uh, confirmation email that you received from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This particular article by Dr. Don Berwick titled Developing and Testing Changes in the Delivery System from the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1998. That really discusses the methodology for the model for improvement. Most studies, as you know, are knowledge building. They either raise our awareness about a topic and provide new knowledge. And the question is, what can we do with this new knowledge? Not all of it is, is particularly actionable to all of us in our daily work. The condition may be rare enough that either we rarely see the condition or we rarely have a chance to treat it, or we may be ambulatory physicians and it may be a topic that is pertinent to the hospital setting. Uh, sometimes new knowledge drives policy, obviously sometimes just new awareness, and sometimes it's highly pertinent to our daily work. And the more pertinent the knowledge is to our work, then the more of an imperative it is for us to understand that knowledge and put it into practice. So the purpose of this call is to talk about how we do that, how we take the results of the study and use it to improve care. It's actually a great discipline to develop. We've been doing the uh, author in the room calls for about a year now, and some of the topics uh, are much more obvious how they apply to our systems of care and the changes we should make, and some are less obvious. This particular article, I think, provides a great opportunity to explore that. Uh, while a clinician, again, might wonder how this article can be used beyond just general knowledge building, here are some examples. Now, in general, we should keep in mind that providing educational uh, efforts to improve knowledge and to change practice uh, is useful, it's helpful, but it is often a weak method of inducing reliable, sustained behavior change, whereas hard, specific system changes are frequently harder to make but tend to be much more effective and sustained in their efforts. So here are some examples of what we might do with this new knowledge, and then we'll get your feedback uh, for the rest of the call. Uh, the first is, as an example, education. Uh, again, a relatively weak inducer of change, frequently necessary but not sufficient. So uh, as an example, when this call came out, I emailed the doctors in our particular practice about this finding and made a recommendation for how we should think differently now about diarrhea. You know, we tend to have, we tend not to have in the ambulatory world a routine set of orders that physicians follow for patients with diarrhea, but most of us have a relatively routine set of questions that we keep in our mind. For instance, we're all used to asking, you know, have you been on antibiotics recently and have you traveled recently? And so the educational effort needs to show the results of this study and we need to add to our armamentarium, uh, have you been or are you on a proton pump inhibitor? I believe that's a valuable question now to ask with the results of this, uh, this study. Uh, a next example might be uh, that labs may change their uh, routine evaluation of stool samples submitted for diarrhea. For example, when the knowledge about E. coli 015787 came out, became, became recognized as a pathogen that caused body diarrhea and had other significant untoward complications, labs changed their standards such that any stool, many labs changed their standards, such that any stool submitted that contained visible blood would automatically be tested for E. coli 015787. And many of you on the call are from hospital systems. It'll be interesting to get your feedback as to how you think you will use this new knowledge in terms of uh, possibly more routine testing of C. diff on samples submitted for diarrhea. 
you can generate additional examples. Uh, if you're a hospital-based system, you may have routine order sets. And if you have routine order sets for diarrhea, uh, uh, the testing of C. diff may become more of a routine than it has been in the past. So that's the nature of the conversation we'd like to have with you. We'd like to generate ideas and get your thinking about this study and how we move it from just general knowledge and awareness into practice. Dr. Diallo, really appreciate uh, uh, your presentation. We've made several recommendations based on the study. We've talked about them. We want to talk about some more. And I'd like to get your suggestions for how you might think about moving this knowledge uh, into practice and what ideas you would have uh, about uh, for the participants about what changes they should make in their clinical practice based on this. Um, this is Dr. Dial again. Um, one of the things that we've discussed at our hospitals is having the pharmacy and gastroenterologists sit together and perhaps come up with guidelines for use of these agents in, in hospitals. So at least in the hospital settings, maybe again at a more systems level coming up with guidelines or perhaps even restrictions, especially in an outbreak setting. Um, for patients with their physicians, the other thing is what we observed is a lot of the times patients might have been prescribed a proton pump inhibitor and whatever the disease they were prescribed it for has resolved and yet the prescription uh, continues without it being reevaluated. So I think as we should do with all our medications, reevaluating uh, whether our patients need to continue taking them. If they have gastric reflux disease, is it time for a step-down approach? Uh, are there any other lifestyle changes that patients could use to, in conjunction with medications for, for the treatment of, of, of these disorders? Um, I don't have many other recommendations other than that, but I think especially if, if hospitals are experiencing outbreaks, it's one of reevaluating the use of acid suppressive agents, especially for prophylactic reasons, is, is an area where I think uh, changes could be made. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a great way to start the conversation. And, Madge, I suspect that the, uh, the audience has got a lot of great ideas about this as well, and I think we should move to, uh, to their questions. That would be fine. All right. Thanks, both of you. We'll hopefully, we've set the table here for an interesting discussion. Uh, a quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. So please don't forget to complete the surveys. They're being emailed to you. And we greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. So uh, we are going to turn to questions from our callers, you. Uh, the research presented today sheds some important light on a serious uh, infection risk, especially among older patients, and how treatment of other illnesses may be heightening that risk. So how does one make the best use of the findings in day-to-day -day practice? Uh, please state your name where you're from, uh, your discipline if possible, and to whom your question or comment is directed. And it can be directed at both uh, Dr. Kylo and Dr. Dial. So uh, let's go ahead. Let's go to questions. All right. Thank you. If anyone has a question, you may press zero 01 on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. We will then open up the lines one by one so each of you may ask your question. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press 02. So again, if anyone has a question, please press 01 on your touchtone phone. That will be just one moment for questions. 
All right, and it looks like our first question will come from John with St. Peter's Hospital. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi. My name is John Carson. I'm a clinical pharmacist, as you mentioned, at St. Peter's Hospital in Albany, New York. I have a question first about the, the study. Uh, I, I know here in the United States you can get H2 antagonists and TPIs on an OTC basis. Uh, is that the same in the United Kingdom, and was there any attempt to control for that if it is the same? Uh, this is Sandra Diel answering the question. As far as we are aware, both those types of drugs are not available over the counter, but uh, drugs like antacids like Tums and, and, and those type of drugs are available over the counter, so we weren't able to evaluate those drugs at all. And so John, why do you ask? Well, that might bias the, bias the results. If you had patients who were uh, taking PPIs or H2 antagonists that uh, you were not aware of because they were over the counter, uh, uh, obviously that could, uh, that could change the results. Okay, can I uh, answer that? Is oh, this please Dr. go ahead. Dr. <laughs> Don't be again? shy, Dr. Dial. Go right ahead. Um, unless over-the-counter use is more commonly associated with diarrhea, uh, over-the-counter use of those uh, agents is more associated with C. difficile, if anything, it should dilute the effect we found. Right, so that should make it a more impressive effect. Uh, it would bias the study more towards a negative, and so that would make a positive finding even more impressive. But it's a That's good question. Right. Very good question. Okay, very good. Okay. I do have another question, if yeah, you don't mind. Uh-huh. Uh, I know if I go to my GI physicians with this data, uh, some of them are going to say, well, they want to see a randomized uh, double-blind control study. Uh, because you can't really show causality with this type of study design, although you can suggest it. Is, is there any plans to doing such a study, or can you comment on that? Mm -hmm. um, so for, this is Dr. Dial again. Uh, it's very hard to randomize to see if you can cause harm, so it wouldn't be done on that basis. Um, I agree it's, you know, a randomized control trial is the highest level of evidence, but there are more and more studies suggesting this effect, and we're all finding similar uh, odds ratios for the effect. So I know there was a group in the UK that was looking to see whether stopping patients from using PPIs and going down to lower agents might decrease the risk, but um, speaking to the author personally, he said he had a difficult time uh, getting people to agree to stop taking their proton pump inhibitor. So in general, it's these types of studies, population-based studies or case control studies, are how we look at side effects of medications. And uh, which is a much more appropriate way to do so than a randomized control study just looking looking for a side effect. And I would engage the uh, the gastroenterologist in the conversation about how do we use proton pump inhibitors? What is our standard, not just within your group, but what should our standard in the community be? And then how do we communicate that out? I think as uh, as Madge might have said, or maybe it was Dr. Dial, the tendency is for these medications to get started and then not to be stopped uh, for a long time, well beyond the clinical indication. Uh, and so this, can, this kind of knowledge can impact both the guidelines 
and they can impact the stringency with which we begin to educate physicians about the appropriate use of uh, these medications and the side effects. When most people are prescribing proton pump inhibitors, I suspect that they say that these drugs have no significant side effects, which by and large, uh, they, are, they are very safe. But we do need to keep these things in mind, and I would engage your gastroenterologist in thinking about uh, guidelines based on this and other information about how we should be using proton pump inhibitors. Very good, good point, and it was uh, Dr. Dial who talked about perhaps they're not being good enough systems for understanding when you should get off these things and when they're no longer really needed, so uh, that's a strong reinforcement there. Okay, let's go to another question. Thank you. The next question will come from Lynn with Pudget Sound. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Lynn McFarland with uh, VA at Puget Sound in Seattle. And um, a very, very interesting study. Um, the, the problem with, or the challenge I find with changing hospital policy um, is that you're taking good case control study data and trying to implement uh, policy. The, the problem that you might find with something like this is, is that the physicians all agree that, that in some cases that the acid inhibitors are needed by the patients even as a prophylactic method, but also is they tend to look at data like this and kind of go, well, you know, that's very interesting, but, you know, it might also be kind of a statistical phenomenon where you're just looking at numbers. Is there a basis for, for reason if we have to stop this kind of, you know, good uh, therapy, is there a, a mechanism of why we think that this is actually making the effect would be? Um, the effect of this would be would be that if people have less acid in their stomach, in theory, you're killing off less the spores that people are ingesting. Um, but is there any data showing what kind of a? I mean, what is the minimum number of spores you need to cause disease? Because you know, if it, if it's a huge amount, then it might make sense. Um, kind of, what's the impact of using these medications at, on the specific pathogen itself? Well, good good question, both in terms of sort of the uh, science and I guess the ideology of how all this happens, as well as sort of the communication and what influences. Dr. Dial, you want to take a stab at this? Sure. Um, it's uh, we don't know that information in humans, and again, I think that's one of the problems with with C diff is that our best model is a hamster model and and it's not a perfect one the disease spectrum is different from what we see in humans and so it, it's really hard and there's a huge amount of knowledge I think that we don't know or understand about C. difficile as, as evidenced I think by the fact that it seems like the disease is winning instead of us. Mm -hmm. um, the, the data in fact suggests that the spores are acid resistant and I know one of the big criticisms of, of, of these findings has been if the spores are acid resistant it, it shouldn't matter. But that data came from a hamster model, and we, what was demonstrated in the hamster model, that the spores quickly move into the small intestine before they change into the vegetative phase. We know the vegetative phase is very acid sensitive, and we just don't know when in humans, in fact, when the spores switch to the vegetative phase. And so possibly if they're, if they're converting to the vegetative phase while they're still in the stomach, maybe that's when not having acid in your stomach is what puts you at risk. 
And and the other small point I'd like to make, a lot of, I know there's a lot of interest in basic science and models, but we have to remember a lot of our first understandings of disease came from observations, including cholera and the water system, and it was afterwards we figured out that there was microbes that was causing it. So I think while the the importance of basic science and that has, has increased, I still think we, we need to remember that basic epidemiological studies has taught us a lot from which later we understood the reasons afterwards. Lynn, uh, this is uh, Dr. Chuck Tylo, mm -hmm. and uh, I think Dr. Dial's uh, reply was great. I would like to get your perspective as a hospital person to VA Puget Sound on what you're thinking about. Now, obviously, there are uh, changes that we could make based on how we use proton pump inhibitors. There are also changes that we could make regarding the workup of diarrhea. Very mm -hmm. few physicians were probably involved in the decision to start testing all bloody stool samples for E. coli 157. Uh, and it may be that very few clinicians need to be involved in the decision for how much more frequently we might want to be testing stool samples for C. diff, or maybe maybe some hospitals already do that as a matter of routine. Uh, how are you thinking about the spectrum of changes that are uh, uh, that come from this study? Well, it's I mean it's it's interesting that there's they found such a significant number of community acquired that was not associated with antibiotic use because for certain that's one of the triggers of, of why the physician who sees a patient with diarrhea would even begin to test for C. diff because, I mean, diarrhea being such a common symptom, um, you have to kind of have a trigger to kind of say, well, this justifies the cost of, of a C. diff toxin assay if the patient's been hospitalized and if he's been exposed to broad-spectrum antibiotics. But in the absence of both of those common risk factors, um, we may be missing, a, you know, a, a group of people who are community-acquired C. difficile, and again, they would act as, as a spreading source of C. diff as they, if they get hospitalized. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Dr. Kylo, did you did you want to respond to that? That's interesting. Yeah. No, I'd like what I'd like to do is yeah. is uh, is really hear from folks on the call yep. what specific changes oh. they're thinking about making based on this, this uh, study. Okay. Yes, let's move that along. Thank you very much, uh, Lynn McFarland. Okay, we'll go to another caller. All right. The next question will come from Noreen with, I believe it's Algeny General Hospital. Please go ahead. This is actually Dr. David Kankowski, infectious disease from Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. I was wondering, can you get a little bit closer to your phone? It's a, we've got quite an echo going on. Sure. Is that better? That is better. Thank you. Very good. Again, it's David Piankowski. I'm an infectious disease physician at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Thank you. My, my question is, um, your earlier study related to hospital um, CBS, and uh, I'm sorry I haven't uh, reviewed that part of this conversation, but looking at that and your comments earlier about changing your own hospital practices, I wonder if you've had an opportunity to review that and see if there is any impact on your hospital-based CDIF rates um, with those implementations of changes. Oh, good question. Uh, Dr. Dion? Well, unfortunately, uh, the first study, because of the idea that spores were not important in acid suppression, um, there was not a lot of uh, not a lot of people were convinced that that was needed to be done. 
So, in fact, um, not very many of the hospitals in, implemented policies to decrease the, the use, although I tried very hard to get them to do it. I think some practitioners changed based on that, but there was never a systems change. Our rates have been shown to go down, and, and the work published by Dr. Liu uh, and the group uh, from McGill showed that the rates have decreased significantly. But I, I really believe way more important was that infection control procedures uh, were what was really changed after uh, the news of our, our outbreak and the severity of it became more common knowledge. Uh, those were changes that I think had more of an effect. David, um, uh, this is Chuck Kylo, and I'm a, a one-time ID guy, no longer, but infectious disease people remain some of my favorite people. And I'd like to pick your brain about, uh, I don't know if you're on the Infection Control Committee, if you run the Infection Control Committee at, your, at the hospital, if you're just one of the, one of the consultants, maybe you, can, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. But what system changes are you thinking in Allegheny General Hospital that will result uh, from this study? Yeah, well, we've, we've done a number of things. I am the chair of the Infection Control Committee here as well. Um, and I'm here with Noreen Tompkins as well, our, uh, one of our, uh, our infectious disease pharmacists. Um, and the, the concern about this study is we see just an incredibly uh, large overuse of proton pump inhibitors in the hospital setting. And I think that's probably true of most hospitals across the country. Um, you know, it's almost a knee-jerk reaction of people to put people on a prophylactic proton pump inhibitor and to not question anybody who comes in on a proton pump inhibitor about uh, the need for it and reassessing it. Um, and so in terms of looking at the impact of this study, that's something that we've actually been talking about um, since, since we saw it first published. We, we had uh, sat and met about this, yeah. um, trying to have an impact. I agree that I think you know, if, you, if you expect that the um, uh, Causation here is about 2.9 uh, relative risk. If you try to, to compare that to other uh, causes, you may have better impact by looking at other things. But we're a hospital that really believes in, in a target of zero cases, and we've been very aggressive across the board in, in uh, our infection control issues. And so for us, um, any extra impact is something that we're very interested in looking at. So what are the range of options for uh, changes that you're thinking about making based on this data? Well, one of the things that, of course, is happening across the country now is the reconciliation of um, medications when people first come into hospital. Uh, here in our hospital, that means the nursing staff will obtain all home medications, and the physician has to order them to be continued uh, or to not be continued so that there's a double reconciliation at that point. And so it may be putting some uh, educational effort into that point in time, trying to get people to assess where uh, the, the basis for the medication is, uh, is, is uh, helpful. Um, you know, obviously, we've done all of the other infection control issues as well. Uh, one of the big successes recently in infection control, of course, is getting people to use waterless um, alcohol-based rubs uh, for, for hand, instead of hand washing, which, of course, don't kill the sports for C. diff. So we've now had to go back and re-educate people about that to make sure that they're washing hands in, in, in a way that we've just uh, sort of gotten people used to using the water. Mm. And with Noreen on the call, uh, you know, one of the reasons 
there's many reasons we over overutilize many medications. One of the reasons we overutilize proton pump inhibitors is because we have the perception that the side effect risk is relatively negligible, um, and we tend not to think too much about about cost, or we have assumptions about uh, about cost in terms of prophylaxis that that are uh, that are probably unrealistic in terms of the amount that they save from preventing GI bleeds and things along those lines. Noreen, do you see this data as helping you to create uh, a different argument about uh, how proton pump inhibitors can be controlled in the hospital and to provide new guidelines for PPI use in the hospital? I think that's something we are um, probably going to want to revisit. We do have stressful prophylaxis guidelines that primarily advocate you know, using the H2 over the, the proton pump inhibitor. Unfortunately, I think like Dr. Pienzkowski mentioned, I think it's uh, the side of, and you have mentioned as well, the side effect profile of the PPI tends to be a little bit um, more favorable when you look at thrombocytopenia and other other effects. Um, so I think that we would like to revisit it with the GI physicians at some point. The other thing that um, our hospital is moving towards is can, um, CPOE or physician order entry. So you know, the question would be whether or not you know, we would want to utilize that aspect um, as when patients are transferring out of the ITU to the non-ITU floor as to whether or not we would want to, you know, have the physician reassess the need for the proton pump inhibitor at that point as well. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of different ideas uh, mentioned in there, including medication reconciliation as a framework and a process whereby some of these things might be flagged. So uh, that's a, a great one coming from Allegheny uh, General, uh, which has contributed so much uh, in terms of uh, zero infection uh, goals. Uh, let's go to another question. Thank you. The next question will come from Anisha with Fraser Health. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Anisha Lakhani. I'm a Drug Use Evaluation Fraser Health Authority. My question is for Dr. Dial um, about um, the, the second phase of your analysis included 100 and, um, about 400 cases that were clinically diagnosed for having C. diff diarrhea. Can you explain to me how that is done and to what degree is there subjectivity involved in that type of diagnosis? This is Dr. Dial again. Um, Dr. Dial, could you um, quickly just re repeat that question? I, I, there was a lot of kind of muffled sound. It may just be my phone. I just want to make sure people heard that. So um, the question was 400 of our cases were based on a clinical diagnosis, and could I speak to that and how well the diagnosis might have been made? Um, Unfortunately, with the database, we don't have any information on symptoms of diarrhea because they're not recorded. So the general practitioner could have recorded the patient as being toxin positive, and potentially you could argue there's a, a weakness with that, that maybe they were just colonized and they didn't have the disease. And then they had a section where they could tick out a clinical diagnosis. Of, they could fill in Clostridium difficile as a clinical diagnosis, or they could fill it in as an infection diagnosis. So for us, there are potential problems with each way that they were being characterized. And what we, what we showed in our second table was that the characteristics of whether you were recorded based on a lab result or based on a clinical suspicion that the patients look the same. So in our minds, that made us believe that 
it was just a difference of recording by the particular general practitioners and whether they were toxin positive recorded or clinical diagnosis recorded that they probably all represented the same thing because their ages were the same, their exposure to antibiotics was the same, and their exposure to proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers was essentially the same as well. Okay, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, my concern was from the perspective of validity and reliability um, of a large data set like this, especially if you're going to draw conclusions on the results, and I understand the, the comparisons uh, of the populations being very similar. Um, however, I do have a concern about validity of um, clinical diagnosis, which is quite subjective. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Dial, did you want to respond? Well, just one, the other thing we did is that we analyzed the two groups separately and found almost exactly the same results. And if anything, the toxin-positive cases for C. difficile and the clinical had almost exactly the same odds ratio for proton pump inhibitor risk and H2 blocker risk. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, it's, well, thanks for that uh, question. And uh, can we go to another caller? Yes, the next question will come from Gordon, and his company was not stated. Please go ahead. Uh, this is Dr. Gordy Schiff. I actually have brought the, uh, the specialist to the room here. So I'm with the gastroenterologist, and we're trying to convince them. And I actually think that the last exchange uh, was, was really the question they were going to raise, too. They felt that the lack of uh, a clinical history of diarrhea, uh, known for sure, I know it's inferred because the test is being ordered, uh, really uh, limited the uh, um, uh, ability to, to convincingly say this is a cause effect. I, I guess the other question that I would raise, would you like to, Dr. Attar, so, so this is Dr. Attar who's head of gastroenterology and maybe I'll let him ask the question and okay. keep, the, keep the dialogue flowing here. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. We're the group at Cook County Hospital, and uh, we have large population that also using the PPIs. I want to thank you very much for this study. These concerns were really definitely there, especially when the PPIs came and they were everybody was afraid. I was myself concerned that even there will be 10 to 15 percent increase, for example, of tuberculosis, because we know when we cut the stomach um, and resection in the past, TB increased. So definitely, the acid in the stomach is very important. Uh, uh, but um, what really concerned me that we in the U.S., uh, we cannot base our diagnosis just on clinical diagnosis. Even, I mean, C. difficile cultures, we don't care about it in this country. And we care about C. C. difficile toxins. So when I saw this clinical diagnosis, uh, even a gastroenterologist or an ID person, if he said, I think this is C. difficile toxin, I will not believe it. Uh, even sometimes now, endoscopy, when we do endoscopy and we see the pseudomembranous colitis, we like to confirm it with the presence of uh, C. difficile toxins to be, which is more sensitive and more accurate. Uh, and that will bring me to the second question. I mean, many of those patients could develop diarrhea on PPIs, and uh, that uh, could be ranging up to 5%, in some cases 8 to 12, especially if it's used, for example, to kill uh, the Helicobacter pylori. There are studies showing that for, so that could lead to some uh, detection bias. 
And so it's, and now we're moving even, the question is, what about if you included some cases that they're using double PPI per day? I mean, we're finding the PPI in the H2 blockers, and by the way, the H2 blockers, by the 28 days of their use, they will just lose 80% of their efficacy. You would be running just on 20%. And the question, is it really this is effect, affecting the thing? And PPI doesn't have this anaphylactic, uh, doesn't have this um, tolerance, tachyphylactic effect, uh, which uh, doesn't happen. But even with that, we're trying to use twice a day. And there is a Georgetown study showing that for some bleeders use even four times a day. So the oh. question, maybe you could look into those and see if there will be more diarrhea and more C. difficile in the higher dosage. Okay. Well, let's let's see, Dr. Dial. Let's see if you can kind of parse some of this out. Uh, I I heard certainly a lot of concern about C. diff here, but trying to sort of figure out the uh, kind of uh, cause and effect. Do uh, you want to go ahead? So um, this is Dr. Dial again, and thank you for your comments. Um, first of all, the majority of the cases were toxin positive. 833 or 68% were, were toxin positive. And as I said before, when we did a sensitivity analysis only looking at the toxin positive cases, the estimates of the effect of the proton pump inhibitor didn't change. Um, and in fact, uh, the reviewers were a bit more concerned that these were just colonized and not have disease. And, and the other thing we saw is that in the UK, usually the toxin test is only done if a physician asks for it in 90% of the time. So we think at least the general practitioners here, when they ordered the toxin, thought their patient might have had the disease. So, uh, so the majority of the cases were toxin positive and the effects of the PPIs were the same. Uh, the other thing in terms of uh, uh, the concerns about the, the drugs, I mean, we, we didn't have enough patients on double dose to really look at the dose response, um, but we saw that H2 blockers did increase the risk as well. It's just that the risk wasn't as high as with, with proton pump in, inhibitors. So I, I completely concur these are important drugs and they have good effects, and, and but they do have a, a potential side effect, especially I think in, in the elderly. And potentially you take an elderly patient, give them antibiotics, send them to hospital, and then you add the PPI on top of that, you may be just increasing their risk to a level where they may get the, get the disease. The other thing you mentioned is the, the, because proton pump inhibitors can cause diarrhea, they may be more likely to be checked. If what the, the point in the study that I think that actually shows that this is less important is that if you think antibiotics are way more likely to cause diarrhea than uh, proton pump inhibitors, not only that, most of us believe that that was the only reason you ever got C. difficile before. So if anything, that bias where people might be more likely to be diagnosed with C. diff is likely to have occurred because of antibiotics, much more so than you'd be likely to see that bias occurring because of proton pump inhibitors or, or H2 blockers. And with that in mind, we still found, in fact, that less than 50% of the patients were, were on anti antibiotics in the study. So although that's, it's quite possible that they're, that's contributing, if they cause diarrhea, we're more likely to look for it. 
um, I think that effect is, is less likely than you would probably see for a drug like an antibiotic. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks very much for that question. Uh, maybe we can sort of move along. It's All this stuff is, is pretty meaty. Uh, Dr. Kylo, I want to ask you a question, and perhaps Dr. Dial, you can get in here as well on this. When you have, there's clearly we're hearing that people are, are kind of trying to still kind of grasp the research here and see what things maybe don't quite uh, add up or a convincing factor. Uh, anyone that I have spoken to about C. diff, and this is pretty anecdotal, tells me it's a serious uh, issue these days uh, in hospitals and concern also in the community. Is there a way when you're in this kind of an environment where this, you know there's this very important study that Dr. Dial has done more we hope to come where there are options for you know in the all important model for improvement Dr. Kylo small tests of change how you can begin to see uh, potential benefits and difference by by changing practice uh, rather than having to decide across the board uh, it's you know the, the right way to go in every instance are there ways to sort of bore into this in, in a small way well, I think you can. I think you can begin to uh, try to create some standards on a particular unit in the hospital as an example for how proton pump inhibitors are used. Uh, you can uh, potentially t test some changes in the way your, your, uh, your pharmacists interact with your clinicians and things along those lines. And uh, to tell you the truth, Matt, I was going to ask that exact same question to Gordy Schiff, who was uh, one of our last uh, uh, the folks who asked, uh, who uh, yes, asked well, I, I didn't mean to cut him off. That, that's okay. <laughs> he can uh, come back if you'd like. Yes, uh huh. If we can get Gordy back online, it'd be great to have him back online. Okay, you were going to ask that uh, question of him. Yeah, because uh, I'd like to know how folks, particularly hospital-based folks, are really thinking about uh, about this. And as you are alluding to, it is a relatively big change to uh, institute guidelines across the system and and. Uh, uh, and you'd like to test something before you got there. And so what smaller test of change can you make? And as I said, one test is to uh, change, uh, just have the conversation in one ICU or on one nursing unit uh, or in one medical practice uh, to uh, talk to the lab about how they might uh, begin to test some changes in the way they deal with uh, samples submitted for diarrhea workup. Right, that's sort of, sort of something that was manageable. Obviously, when you have conditions that everybody is trying to uh, treat here, uh, the proton pump inhibitors, and we, we all live in a world now where concerns about, you know, serious uh, acid and acid-related diseases are, of course, very, very serious as well. Uh, I don't know if we lost uh, Dr. Schiff. No, no I'm, I'm definitely here. here. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying patiently. to think about well, how to You want to respond get, to Dr. Quick... Kylo, and then maybe we'll also just try and get him one more question. Just, Go ahead. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, clearly you're asking how do we deal with this in the hospital. When a process and an outcome are very clearly and convincingly linked, then we can target our efforts on changing the process. In other words, if, if giving PPIs are linked in a convincing way, uh, which this study is trying to prove, but obviously I'm in a room with people who are questioning it, and, but we need to have more data to support this or refute this. But so once you do that, then you can put your efforts, because I think it would be hard for us to show we're going to decrease the rate of C. difficile infection by tinkering with PPI use. Um, we need to f make sure that we understand that that leakage between process and outcome is clearly established, and then we'll work on it. We've actually been engaged in a lot of efforts to limit PPI use in our hospital, mostly around cost 
containment issues, and we know that they're probably overused, but actually we've been quite successful, especially in our outpatient setting, of having a pretty, uh, I would say, conservative approach to the use of these agents, which of course is where your study measures them. So, so the question is uh, establishing this convincing linkage um, and, and other, other ways of uh, decreasing the, the outcomes, which, which we may be more potent, which have been alluded to with infection control. So I, I guess the one thing that I, I would say was, will probably not be an important uh, intervention is this idea about leading the, the different approaches to our workup of diarrhea. For better or for worse, I think uh, uh, everybody has this as the first thing they think about among, among my trainees and house staff to uh, send for this test. And often we're getting positive tests that we don't know what to do with. So I think there's still a lot of uh, uncertainty and additional knowledge that we need to get. Let me just mention the very last thing. If there was a study showing that PPIs decreased by this relative, same relative risk uh, uh, that you've shown in the study, um, the, the rate of diarrhea. I'm sure that there would be teleconferences all over the nation in every lunchtime seminar, and everybody would know about this. So I, I feel, even though I've said some critical things about the study or our group, I feel very excited that we're at least doing some counterbalancing of trying to get more discussion going around studies that have different kinds of conclusions. Obviously, this was not sponsored by the, the, the makers of a PPI and designed to show it should be used more widely. It was, it was, it was an attempt to look at how to make this uh, a safer place to take care of patients in the hospital. So I, I think we also need that perspective, and, and this has to play an important role in terms of weighing risk and benefit in choice of therapy. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Tial. I, I want to give you an opportunity if you if you want any uh, any further comment on that. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Schiff for that That's right. comment. Uh, um, and 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 just to add to that, I mean, we've all talked about limiting antibiotic use to try to control this disease. But there's, and we know that there are antibiotic utilization patterns that need to be improved on, but at the same time, we know if we don't give patients antibiotics, they could die of their infections. And, and we've tried to just go with, there are times when you need to have antibiotics, and, and we try to decrease their use when we're not convinced they're absolutely needed. And I would just advocate the same thing for acid suppressive therapy. There are clearly times when these drugs are indicated and needed. There are times when it's less clear, but there's a lot of literature out there suggesting that they are overused and they're often given in people who may not need them. And I think if we just start there, we'd be doing good in general, both for cost and maybe limiting nosocomial infections because there was a previous study in JAMA that also linked them to pneumonia. So um, I think, again, just targeting when we use drugs and using them appropriately is the way to go. All right. Thank you very, very much. Uh, we're going to have to close out this uh, question discussion uh, portion of today's call, but most interesting, and thank you, uh, everybody. Uh, there will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another, and we actually really encourage you to take advantage of it. To find the link to this web-based discussion, go to IHI.org, look under Community, then discussion groups, and then author in the room. Now, in order to view or participate in this discussion group, you have to register with IHI.org, but it's free and very simple to do so. So we're coming to the end of this 11th in a series of hour-long discussions we do call author in the room. I want to thank Dr. Sandra Dial and Dr. Chuck Kylo very much for their knowledge and guidance today, and I want to give each of you an opportunity to make a very brief uh, closing remark. Uh, Dr. Dial, why don't we start with you? 
Oh, I think I just made mine just before. <laughs> Your parting words for today. Okay, yeah. Dr. Kylo. I think there's a great discipline to be gained uh, from just thinking about studies like this match and thinking about the system implications for how we might change our practice. And uh, I think this study is uh, really wonderful in that regard. I would also ask those rough gastroenterologists in Cook County to go easy on Dr. Gordy Schiff. He's a nice guy, and uh, I hope they don't beat him up too badly over this one. Okay. <laughs> Word to Dr. Schiff. Okay. Thank you both. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and our next discussion takes place on February 15th. Look for details soon on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether author in the room participants make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion suggests some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale. Uh, we are asking all participants to complete two shorts surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. And we do thank you uh, for uh, taking the time to do so and for filling out those surveys. Again, thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day.